0: Welcome to this week's enemy podcast uh this week we have three people three of the uh, the old favorites me going under the Jitsi handle uh poop of the world after the great and now mist uh sociopathic news of the world uh and with me we have my old favorite uh james who's going under uh the rather humorous uh kind of Jitsi handle manufacturing nonsense how you doing james
1: Hello, how are you getting on, folks? Uh, If you want a little peek behind the the curtain of the recording of the Anime podcast, uh, we were meant to be recording this a couple of days ago, and I was very sick uh, all of a sudden, and had to go out. Um, And I'm kind of glad that it did, because uh, when we were originally talking about this episode, I was very annoyed about something when it came to journalists. Most of you know I spend a lot of my time on Twitter, arguing with, and ridiculing journalists. But by the time it came to record the podcast, I'd completely forgotten uh, what it was that I was pissed off about in the first place. Uh, But now, uh, enough things have happened over the past couple of days that have wound me up that I'm back to my original state of uh, vibrating at every frequency how much I hate journalism and journalists. So my hate is pure today.
0: That's beautiful. Um, I should, it should be mentioned that uh, the listeners do actually know that you were sick, because I mentioned that you were puking into a bucket. I thought you wanted to, them to know that and why you weren't around, you know?
1: Um, well, it wasn't a bucket this time. I did make it to the toilet. But uh, when me and Alex did live together, my, my ongoing alcoholism did mean that I spent a lot of my time throwing up in a bucket.
0: Yeah, I remember once I sneaked into your room to steal some money from you, and I actually put my foot in the in the puke bucket. Never told you that because it. Uh, I don't know why I didn't tell you that. I was very open about how stupid I was. But anyway, that's a story and a podcast for another day. Uh, we also have Dan, oh, wonderful Dan with his face, and he is going under the Jitsi handle Prick Robinson. How you doing,
2: Dan? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Of. Events in the press today kind of justified this podcast, I feel. Boris Johnson apologetics.
0: Well, you know, it's. I always think it's funny about when British Prime Ministers apologize for genocidal tactics and genocidal behaviors, because it took uh, the British about 150 years to apologize for the Irish famine. It was only Tony Blair that did it in 97. And you got one after about eight months and 100,000 deaths, as opposed to the million-plus uh, 150 or 170 years ago now. But was, so c- count yourself lucky. Um, that, that's progress. It's damn sure progress. Your, your ancestors who fled Ireland for those very reasons would be going, why are you complaining about these guys? Anyway, um, this week, uh, it, our topic is indeed the British media. We, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even a month ago, did an episode on uh, the Normans, and we said at the time we thought this was one of the cruxes of the British, the problem with Britain problem with the british political system and culture Uh, i think maybe equally so british media um it's and it's just well we'll get into it but it's psychopathic tendencies um what we're going to do is we're going to kind of start uh with a very general question i suppose which is in what way does journalism and in particular the type of journalism we're going to be talking about client journalism How does it manifest itself in the UK and Ireland? And obviously, because it's one Irish guy, one Scottish guy living in Ireland and one English guy sadly living in England, we might be a bit more heavily towards the UK with this particular topic. But uh, yeah, does anyone want to jump in and kind of give their view of uh, what way client journalism manifests
1: itself? Well, the the best example I could think of off the top of my head, um, which is true for Ireland, and for the UK is the way that the covid crisis has played out in both countries where journalists seem to see their jobs as holding the public to account and continuously giving cover for terrible and basically you know psychopathic behavior by you know both governments uh, either side of the Irish sea. And so in terms of the way that they run pieces that say everyone should be getting back to their office as soon as possible um, to make sure that, you know, landlords are getting their money or the way that, you know, everyone should be going to schools apart from the fact that there was chunks of time where almost the only thing that was open was schools and the <laughs> cases and our rates were either staying You know fairly steady or going up so these give you examples of no critical thinking no ability to deconstruct uh what is happening in any meaningful way and how it manifests itself is in ridiculous death rates for uh a pandemic that in reality is very easy to solve dan do you want to maybe
0: have a go uh Uh, but what's happening today? So for the listeners, we're recording this on the twenty seventh of January. Uh, the newspapers in Britain have been for the most part full of rather garish photos of um, Boris Johnson with the headlines being "I'm sorry," which we referenced there a second ago. Um, but do you want to kind of <laughs> kind of analyze how that might be an example of client journalism and how in general, how the soft touch that Boris Johnson has had, from the from well, most media, anyway, uh, over the course of the last year, how that has is a sign of client journalism. Do you want to handle that, Dan?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's not even soft touch, is it? It's complete compliance. The guy is responsible for, well, directly responsible almost due to their policy of hundred thousand, and that's that's the low estimate. That's the government's own figures, which are massaged anyway, for hundred thousand deaths and. Rather than being held to account, I mean, you've got papers like The Sun, which is a fucking shit rag anyway, but we will remember them as the headline. And it's just fucking mind boggling that you have an election in 2019 where a guy who wants to offer people a better future is demonized as a communist. And then you've got a guy that is directly responsible for hundreds of thousands of people dead that is is just being let off the hook and I, I don't how you cannot see that that is just complete compliance to to a a basically a, a strain of politics it's just there's no there's no journalism in it it is literally just publishing press releases for the government
0: yeah i think the the key thing is that we're going to be talking about it throughout the episode is that you know journalists in britain anyway i think ireland it's fairly Pretty much the same. I mean, there's only really one big media in Ireland and that's RTE, which is government uh <laughs> government run and certainly government funded. Um, but the big thing is, you know, journalists have in, in even other countries, that's to say, have become a combination of courtiers and kind of right wing fanatics. So you could have the courtiers are like Newsnight or they're like I wouldn't say the Times because it's owned by Murdoch, but you know, even The Guardian, you know, for the most part courtiers who are going to, like you said, uh, just copy and paste press releases, uh, a light touch at best, if not just outright uh, blowjob for (laughs) a lot of the time. And then there's the right wing fanatics who are, are represent a segment of the elite Murdoch being the most famous. Uh, but there's others, of course, who have their own goals. They want to maintain the type of status quo of, of the wealthy elite, but have goals of, for example, getting out of the EU and making Britain, basically Singapore and the Thames. And that's kind of all there is. There is no other daily newspaper. There's not even pretty much anything, even a monthly and kind of magazine that kind of challenges that. It's... it's it's, gr- it's pretty terrifying how much control they have. And if you don't want to go along with that, you won't have a career in journalism. And that's the end of, end of the story, you know?
1: I mean, the fact that, you know, the amount of journalists are, are talking and doing hit pieces that are effectively like, well, you think it's bad. Well, just imagine how it would be under Jeremy Corbyn. Imagine that. And it's like, well, why are you imagining how bad it would be under Jeremy Corbyn? It's fucking bad now. Why don't you hold the guy that's actually fucking killing people to account, rather than hold Jeremy Corbyn to account? A man that has no power. It's not even in the political party was the leader of anymore. You know, it's just like such a diversion tactic. And But who does it fool? Like, absolutely fucking no one other than the other people in their fucking coked up parties.
0: I don't know if that's true. I think a lot of people are fooled by that in Britain. I mean, or in England. I should be very specific when it comes to that. I think England and sp- i could almost say we're talking about the English media really or English owned. Um even though Murdoch of, co- of course is Australian. I suppose we should go back uh a bit because we now we know when we can we'll be kind of fleshing this out throughout the episode of, can think of examples off the top of our heads in British media, the treatment of migrants, the treatment of asylum seekers, of Muslims, at one point of gay, uh, lesbian, bisexual, at the current treatment of trans, I'm going to sound like Cornell Best, brothers and sisters. Um, That's obvious. Anyone listening to this would have to be fucking blind and deaf and dumb not to have noticed those things. But what we need to do is we kind of need to go back a bit, I think, and ask, was there... Uh, Was the idea of the fourth estate of a kind of a pioneering—I wouldn't say radical, but kind of taking the government, keeping the government to account—did uh, that ever exist? Um, I can try and answer that somewhat as a historian. One of the links at the bottom of the podcast will be a documentary which goes more in depth about the origins of the kind of monopoly of of media in Britain, and the and it goes back to the nineteenth century when, for the most part maybe 3% of the population could vote in Britain, um, less in Ireland. That's Just in Britain, it was, it was 3%. The power and wealth was completely monopolized in the hands of the, basically an ancien regime and ascendancy class who were descended, as we knew, no, from a previous episode from the Normans. Anyway, the point is, they didn't give a shit about what the poor thought. They didn't give a shit if they read or not. Uh, this was not something high in their list of priorities. And into this kind of vacuum, comes a radical press. Really, from the 1790s until the 1850s, a very large amount of the press that existed was working class, radical, middle class who wanted reform so they could vote and have a, a sane society. And, you know, you have uh, you know the poor man's guardian, you have the beginnings of the Manchester Guardian, which became eventually the, the actual guardian of today. And there was actually a lot of, of kind of fight back against authority because authority wasn't interested and hadn't thought of having, trying to propagandize the poor because the poor were scum, they were plebs. We don't talk to them and we certainly don't invest into trying, getting them to, to believe what we believe. And I think out of that, you know, you have the beginnings of Chartism, the reform movement that led to the Reform Act of 1832. You have the beginnings of socialism uh, the fact that so many writers and revolutionaries hid out in London because it was a great center of media. And there was a time really before a combination of stamp backs basically uh taxes on printing on the costs of printing became enormous and exorbitant and just in general political pressure uh that it kind of was wiped out and so if there was a time in my mind when the media uh, and that you know was democratic and had the ability to challenge power it was quite a long time ago now over 170 years ago uh, and even the few papers that did exist after that, many of them disappeared by the middle of the 20th century. So it did exist at one point in Britain, but it was, it's was it been dead for a very, very long time, at least from what I'm aware. Uh, does anyone want to, or can anyone think of any other time when there was a fourth estate that challenged power?
1: Um, yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, I think it's important for us to remember, because um, I think there's a sort of idea in the left that, before like the nineteen sixties or uh, a certain point, like the press was pure um and was always telling the truth or um uh, you know, was there to educate. It's a very Whig history way to look at it, where you know, as soon as the printing press is invented, you start getting propaganda wars almost immediately. Um and you know, William Pitt the the younger is effectively running like media campaigns that would not be out of place now. So, you know, going back and looking at that stuff and the way... I mean, for example, if you want just one example of what they were able to do in that time is that the the countryside was seen as the place of revolutionary and in Britain because, you know, that's where all the peasants were and they were collecting together. And it was always seen that people in the city were seen as the... You know, the idiots, because, you know, they were uneducated. They, had, they didn't have, many, have much free time because they were all working in factories. And basically, one generation with a, a media campaign, uh, they were able to make it out that people that live out in the countryside are country bumpkins and their opinions are so stupid that they shouldn't be listened to. So you're getting this stuff very, like, a lot sooner than, than people imagine. Uh, What also happens in Britain as well is there is a little chink of light in the 60s and the 70s, uh, going, you know, starting to lose all of its its steam in in the 80s and the 90s. But, you know, you do have this growth of working class journalism, people going into papers, uh, a few papers that are, you know, like The Guardian Independent are a little bit more interesting. Not great. But, you know, still have, you know, they're they're getting people out, like somewhere like The Courier in Dundee, you know, actually people that are coming from schemes or working for national newspapers. And for various reasons that we'll get into, you know, this is is a long, long time ago now. But I think the centrists and libs of the UK do this really annoying thing where they seem to think that our history is... American history. They get confused and think that you know the great leaps of journalism that were made in the 70s in America, with you know like and went on to be films like all the presidents men and you know the journalism that went around the, the zodiac killings etc cetera, etc. Cetera, they seem to think that we ever did anything like that, and that was very very limited in in the British press. The British press basically used to operate on get up with a hangover, like, get some copy, and see how many points you could sink and through a three-hour lunch break, and then see how much work you could do absolutely half-cut for the rest of the, the evening. So, which, you know, hey, look, I'm not knocking that as a, as a way of life uh, that would be much preferable than for most people, but the the sliths and the... You know, the telling truth to power has never really existed in the UK, uh, and especially in Ireland.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, Ireland's, one of Ireland's kind of um, premier newspapers once upon a time was the Irish Press, which was literally owned by Eamon de Valera from the 1920s and ran his propaganda into the 1970s and 80s, even after he died. So, yeah, no, we have, we have a, a you know, a different history, really, than Britain does when it comes to newspapers. Yeah, I mean, Dan, can you think of any time in your life when a newspaper actually challenged power in England?
2: Uh, <laughs> no, not particularly. I mean, my my relationship personally with the press has always been one of intense skepticism, bordering on cynicism, because I never believed a word that any of them said particularly. There's, there's certain papers that I will read for their international perspectives. I tend to find the the guardians okay when it's not about this country. And weirdly the financial times is probably one of the better papers for reading uh, in terms of what's actually going on inside the UK because the people they report for tend to have money and have an actual interest in knowing what's going on. But other than that, it's, it's a farce UK media.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, you can never really put a finger on it because there's so many things along the way. Uh, people often turn to the perfumo scandal in the early 60s as kind of, which was which is so tame by modern standards, just you know, one of the, I think a government minister having an affair, that, nothing really important. Uh, as an example, oh, the media, that was, you know, it took down the government or whatever. Whereas in fact, it's just that, uh, you know, the, the, the tabloids have n- always had license to go after politicians, no matter their stripe for their personal dalliances and their affairs. It's the whole kind of issue of policy and what they do you know, it's a society that they, for the most part, have left them alone for. Anyway, the reason why I'm trying to say there is, it's kind of back up James's point. I don't think there's, I can think of any example, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not familiar necessarily with mid-20th century British popular culture, uh, other than the Beatles, uh, but I, don't, I can't think of anything where they went, where the media actually went after power. I can think of a lot of times where they, they spent 80% of their time attacking the Labour Party. Uh, maybe we should talk about this in, later on, but why was it that the Labour Party got in at all in 1945 and the six, 1964 and in the 70s when they, throughout that time, had the media attacking them? We can talk about that, I suppose.
1: Yeah, just to kind of pick up Dan's point there. Because um, the FT, are, he is right. Sometimes you do get astonishingly good journalism in the FT. Um, but also, the Times has this weird thing. Where occasionally, uh, for a headline, it forgets what its ideological position is meant to be in terms of like hiding what you're saying. It will just say the thing, which you know everyone knows that you're meant to be cloaked. So they'll say something along the lines of like, um, you know, Blair sees oil fields as goals for money or something like that, and so suddenly. <laughs> They're saying like the quiet bit loud so they can weirdly it's i think it's because they're basically see themselves as the paper of power that they they can be refreshingly free uh, when <laughs> when it comes to uh you know saying i don't know how to describe this but you know like the coded words suddenly just drift away and they're like oh yeah no i mean uh, we're just like killing Arabs, basically. And they're like, oh, right. So it's kind of refreshing to read when they do that.
0: I suppose one last point before we go on to the next question, which is I think we have to bring up Murdoch. Um, because, I mean, he I mean, he is such a huge kind of imperial force and influence within media in Britain and in, less so in Ireland, but still somewhat here, but hugely so in America. He arrives, as far as I know, uh, in the 60s, um, late 60s, but his influence really began to be felt in, in the 80s when he began kind of grabbing up paper. So he, if I'm correct here, uh, bought uh, one of the heralds, maybe it was called the Daily Herald, and that became The Sun. If I'm correct, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. He then eventually in the 80s became friendly with uh, Margaret Thatcher, And was able to buy the Times and the Sunday Times, which at the time would have been illegal. There was laws against monopoly. But he was very close with Thatcher, went to see her in 10 Downing Street, and she waved that aside. And so he became the force he did, really, under her watch because he promised to look after her. And famously in the 90s, um, he gave birth to New Labour by inviting uh, one... um, Tony Blair to his one of his I think it was his island in the uh, Caribbean. It wasn't Jeffrey Epstein Island. It was another island. Um, and um, t- Blair said the right thing and basically said we're not going to do diddly squat to you. We're going to maintain a neoliberal policy and we're going to be kind of a bit antagonistic towards the EU. So it'd be we'd have to bring up Mr. Murdoch because he's such a huge influence and an insidious terrifying influence on the media. Um, The media was always bad in Britain, but he made it much, 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 much worse, and much more seedy. And, um, yeah. But anyway, next question. Um, So, under dictatorships, journalists are threatened. uh, Violence is done to them. It's not quite the same way in Britain and in America, uh, but focusing on Britain. How are journalists in Britain kept in line?
1: So, this, this is partly why um, and I'm not saying American journalism is great and it's a bastion of anything uh, other than, you know, conflating its own issues, but it is better overall than the British press and this is the same reason why the Irish press are so dog shit as well and it's basically, they're kept in line by social rule. So if you're a journalist that say, you know, does political coverage you will get invited to swanky soirees you will occasionally go to a dinner party with the Taoiseach or you might go um, you know to a bbq with an mp and if you start going after them too hard if you uh maybe bring up something that they don't like Uh, You'll suddenly find that your invites to the dinner parties stop turning up and then your ability to move up in the world goes because that's where your editor is, that's where your sub-editor is. Uh, You'll suddenly find that you're not getting the good scoops because number 10 are not giving you the briefs anymore. And as we've seen from the, the way that Boris Johnson's running his government is they'll give all the information to journalists to leak first. Uh, to test the waters to see how it's going to go. And then maybe if they feel like it, uh they might actually do a press release themselves. But they pretty much leave it to Laura Kunzberg and uh Robert Peston to do uh the job of what is meant to be the press secretary of um the you know of number ten. So it's just very simple. Uh and that is also basically because they all run in the same circles as You know, everyone else in the media, like comedians or uh, novelists, that is how you end up with such a fucking awful and horrendous media class in the UK and Ireland. The only slight difference in America is is because it's big enough and there's uh, enough room and still kind of enough local newspapers that you can at least have a little bit of uh, uh, freedom when it comes to what you want to say, uh, who you're going to say it to. The other day, I saw something on it, uh, MSNBC, whoever it's called, uh, and it was a journalist who was talking about, I know this is like prime time as well. And she was on talking about uh, the Republican Party in such a candid way. Now, you know, you want to, you can talk about who the power of party is in America, because uh, it's definitely the Tory party in the UK, but I just cannot imagine. Um, a British journalist, ever so succinctly and coherently bringing around an argument of why the Republican, the Republican Party are playing with such fire uh, and how dangerous they are as a force at the moment um, when it comes to the, the democratic process. Um, it was very eloquent, it was very smart, probably something that I don't agree with on many things. Uh, but to see that really just fucking my my jaw was aghast because it'd been so long since I'd seen something that coherent and articulate from a journalist, because in the UK, you basically just get uh, whatever the government says. So that's what we'll go with.
0: Yeah, I, even I can think of, of a fair few American journalists, um, not all on, even on, um, MSNBC, but a fair few that, you know, are our challenge um, the way America's going, so uh, even, what's his name, Joe Scarborough who's so fucking right-wing, even he had an episode recently where he's like, maybe we should try this social democracy thing out, huh? Now, you'd never have fucking anyone on fucking, even the BBC, well, especially the BBC, but even on Channel 4, even saying that, I mean, you wouldn't have Jon Snow or what's his name, Krishna um, say that. So, I mean, it, I think you're right there, James. I think the other way is just much, much simpler, which is get them very young. That you, you really have to go through the right channels. And so from school into college or into university, there's these traditional channels on how you become a, a journalist. And you're just going to get cut out before you ever Become a you know a, a a paid journalist by either your teachers, your professors, your your work. Uh, you know, your your intern. If you're doing an internship, I, I imagine many of them do. You're not going to be thought of as the right social person unless, again, you're going out with these people, unless you're uh, saying the right things, unless you're kissing the right asses, and all of that weeds out anyone really. You know, and this is assuming they even went into the courses to begin with. Um, who could be a challenge, you know? And You're not going to have historians going to go through all of that shit. And then once they're, you know, if they did get into, uh, become a journalist, then say all the things that the British people badly need to know. I mean, it's not surprising that that they're able to whip up a storm over Joe Biden having Irish heritage because people have no awareness whatsoever of what Britain did in Ireland, and and no journalist wants to talk about it at all, so much so that they can just say, IRA, and they go, oh my god, Joe Biden's the IRA, and that's enough.
2: Yeah, I mean, mostly agreeing with what James had to say in terms of it it being a form of social control, but then as well, when you are basically reduced to PR, it's quite simple to just refuse to give information out. If if you rely solely on what's given to you rather than actually doing the job of investigation, then you're you're very easy to control because your laziness leads you to sort of rely on other people to do the job for you. I think it is interesting when you're talking about the the MSNBC journalist. I think the closest I can think to a journalist like that over here, and even though I I disagree with his politics I think, as a journalist, he he's quite consistent. Um, is fucking Peter Oborn, of all people, and that he he he's, he's outright stated before that the way that the press operate in this country is it's basically a fucking rigged game. And sort of. He he didn't see the appeal of someone like Jeremy Corbyn himself, but he respected the fact that he he was chosen by the labor members and if he was a labor member he is the kind of person that he would want leading the labor party and i think in terms of him not refusing to toe the line at the telegraph he he was you know unceremoniously booted off and now i think you basically see an occasional guardian article from him and nothing else so you know he didn't play the game and he was punished for it
0: yeah no it's it's um it's pretty clear that you're not going to have a career um, other than maybe having a blog, if you're lucky. And that's not going to be... You're not going to be invited on to Newsnight. You're not going to be invited on even Channel 4, uh, with just a blog. And your algorithms are going to keep you from being listened to by anyone anyway, even if you do have a blog. So I suppose
1: what we're I mean, talking about... Here here would be a point, though. Like, something like Novara Media, which, at the moment, is probably you know the largest medium for left-wing news that there is i mean it's not fucking massive but it's doing all right for itself and greatly so as far as i'm concerned but does it get a snifter of anything from anyone no but you'll find something like the jewish chronicle which is basically like uh one person's rag <laughs> or greedo fox um which is basically tantamount to a fascist watch list it gets loads of leaks and access to politicians so that just shows you how ingrained and how ridiculous um the british press is and if someone like michael walker or you know, aaron bastani is uh, on the bbc with like andrew o'neill or something like that they're basically ridiculed and told that their ideas are absolutely insane uh, as they both side it with you know someone like Farage or I mean we're not too far away from the situation there uh, you know you'd have someone talking about how terrible it is that you know migrants are are drowning in the the sea uh, because of like the unwillingness of the you know British navy uh, and political system to actually save some people's lives from people that have been displaced from a country that we fucking ruined in the first place uh where you'd have someone like Ash coming on and talking about it and you'll have basically to to have the other side is they'll have the woman that put the bin the cat in the bin and like ask like treat her as someone that's, that's like a coherent, you know person to have a view and ideology and be like oh yeah these two these two people are, are equal when it comes to Their thoughts and their their, (laughs) the way that they present themselves in you know in society it's just like I have more respect I have so much more respect for you know someone in Soviet Russia or someone in North Korea now because if you like do not toe the line they'll fucking find your family they'll put you in jail they'll put you in a gulag as we find in like China now you know like if you start nosing around too much. You know, bad things will happen to you. You will disappear. You will find yourself in a concentration camp. Um, what happens here? Oh, you get thrown off of the Daily Telegraph. Well, boo to who
0: Yeah, I can think of, and for the listeners, you can find this in the link at the bottom, one of the links at the bottom, there was a professor, I can't remember his name, um, <clears throat> and this was about 10 years ago, and he was on one of the stupid BBC shows where they call anyone who thinks the world shouldn't be a Fucking hellscape, a uh, uh, fucking red, uh, red commie. But he was on. He was saying, "I think we should have a, a death tax. So when billionaires die, you know, we can tax them. They're dead now. They don't need the money anymore." And the and this was a fucking BBC quote unquote journalist who was just like, "This is cloud cuckoo land." And he was like, "You do know I'm a professor in fucking Glasgow University, right? I'm i, I and I'm 65 years old. I've been writing about this for 40 years. Are you and you you're fucking cloud cuckoo land." And they were all looking like, oh,
1: <laughs> "Look at this weirdo."
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's worse than North Korea. At least in North Korea, you can
1: avoid, you can just be shot. Uh, but here you have to but put why it. Do you think? why do you think that the only people that are allowed some semblance of a left-wing view in The Guardian uh, is comedians? And it's because you can always just go, oh, that's not serious stuff. Like, Stuart Lee might be saying something. Uh, you know, it's not like Stuart Lee's a bastion of left-wing politics at the moment. But, you know, he might say something like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should, you know, have a country that's just slightly nicer to live in, which was effectively <laughs> like all Corbyn was asking for. And they can go, "Ah, yeah, well, it's a joke, though. Don't take it seriously because he's a comedian. Um, you would never get like a professor coming on because we're sick of experts, basically, as, uh, as Michael Gove famously said.
0: I think they don't, they have, uh, sorry, I think they have comedians on because they're celebrities. And I think they, the same reason why Murdoch sticks tits on the front or did stick tits on the front pages of all of his newspapers and fucking shameless, you know, royalist bullshit was because he wanted to commodify the news. The news, you know, under him and many others became a commodity for, for the worth selling. And that's, I think for to the most part, I mean, the, the kind of the right wing, talking points are there as well, but I think if, I think I, I can't remember who said it, but there was um, somebody once interviewed Murdoch and off the record, he admitted if he could make the same amount of money being left wing, sorry for people listening, that's my dog in the background. Um, but yeah, he said if, if I could make the same amount of money pandering to the left as to the right, I'd pander to the left. Uh, but anyway, what we're really talking well, about I here,
1: just, I would just have a final point there, which is to say that when, page three for a while I used to have one um, well, the Sun I think it was page three or it was another page but basically I would say have a scantily clad supermodel or you know adult star or something like that uh, and it would be her you know mostly unclosed in some sort of uh, erotic position uh, but also commenting on some sort of news story of the day and what they would say would all is basically always more coherent and true to the point than anything that Robert Peston has ever managed his entire life. You might have like fucking Sandra with, you know, double Ds draped over an ice cream cone and she'll be saying something like, Oh, well, you know, you see the thing is with like the reason that ISIS kill their um, victims in the orange boiler suits show you the way that Guantanamo Bay uh has affected um, the Middle East, where you never get pressed in saying something as like fucking coherent as that.
0: I never really got past the, um, the image myself, but it's good to know someone was reading the articles. Um, I I'm suppose, the, well, the guy
1: that reads Playboy for the article.
0: as Playgirl. Um, but anyway, uh, what is what we're basically talking about here is is kind of uh, Chomsky and his co-author, who he's always forgotten, of, and even I forgot him. Um, book from 1988, Manufacturing Consent. Um, I suppose, you know, we've been talking about it, but does anyone want to kind of, in a nutshell, explain?
2: It's basically the idea that, that the press are used to define the parameters of what is and isn't acceptable thought.
0: That's a very concise explanation. It's it's um, basically, from my memory, there was six filters that Chomsky and his co-author Um, listed amongst them, you know, the owners, politics, uh, advertisers, um, target audiences, um, you know, obviously political backgrounds that uh, impact um, why newspapers are the way they are. But ultimately, yeah, it comes down to something very simple, which is about creating the narrative. And in Britain, it seems, and maybe you guys can talk about this, it seems that the narrative is set by the tabloids and by Murdoch for the most part, is picked up by the BBC, by Channel 4, and other news sites and whatever. And then that's kind of it. That's the news cycle for the day. Uh, Is that, in essence,
1: kind of how things work in Britain? So, yeah, manufacturing consent. um, Let's maybe go through some of the little phases. I will not name them one by one, but just give a sort of broad overview of how it's constructed. And it sort of starts off that at the educational level. So you go to high school, that's where you learn to to write and read. uh, And you also basically get taught like what's acceptable to say and what's not acceptable to say. Um, You get, and if you're not good at that, you basically, you don't get on and you usually get excluded or expelled. Uh, And it's even worse if you go to university where you get even more of that. So you you get the idea of like what's polite discourse, and if you fall outside of that perimeter, and it's more than likely that you know if you're interested in you know becoming a lecturer yourself or doing a PhD, you'll just find that things get very difficult for you. So to get to the point where you know you've got enough education to to be a journalist, you're already having to knuckle down and um say the right things and act in the right way. Uh then you've basically got is it acceptable to uh, capital in a sense that is like can it be advertised so um, you know if you've got like a swiss watch or something like that they're not going to want to have you running stories in your newspaper about where they get the quartz from and the metal from to make these watches which is very often in you know slavery mines uh, in africa so if you're running too many stories about uh you know how children as young as 5 are digging up diamonds um for you know absolutely no money um every day uh to make these these watches that are being advertised on the next page you'll quickly find that they don't really exist anymore either so then you've got like what is like the media agrees on vaguely of what is going to be discussed what is acceptable um, and yeah, again, it's like, if, if you pull, if you step out of line, then that's it. Number 10 will stop sending you the briefs because they don't want to be grilled too hardly. They need to be seen to be grilled a little bit because then that gives the, the sort of the spectacle that they're being held to account. But if you actually did it properly, you'd be out of a job. Uh, so you've also got anti-communism, which I think is one that, that kind of made sense and does make sense in a broader um aspect back in the 80s uh it's kind of still relevant now but i do think that it it sort of lacks um a real coherent um part from it it's basically i think it would be more fair to say now that you know it's a filter of like can the world be changed will it um will it shake the status quo and you know part of the reason that Newspapers and people that work for newspapers don't want the status quo to be changed. It's because they do well out of it, because they've got their jobs as is. If the window was to change, if um, you know, the world would seem to be in a slightly nicer place of going slightly to the left, then you suddenly find as a journalist that you're not getting invited onto the BBC anymore uh, when you're not you know, coming on and spraying blood about um, you know what, who's ever the enemy this week. Uh, if you're effectively, you know, having to get other people on that are saying, like, yeah, well, maybe we should have a UBI, or um, not that I think that's left away particularly, but, you know, that's sort of seen as a, a sort of semi progressive thing, or someone that's saying, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, maybe we should start worrying about the environment. If you've built your entire career on just shouting about hippies uh, and uh, complaining about woke culture or PC gone mad, if things are changed, then you stop getting work. And so it's well within your interest to propagate the system that already exists. That's kind of what they mean about anti communism there.
0: Uh Dan, if you don't mind, could you go into so one of the one of the filters for manufacturing consent is Flack. And basically that's attacks upon you, your personality, your your everything about you. Um, do you wanna kinda of use the example of Corbyn um you can think tony benn as well tony benn was called a lunatic back in the 70s and 80s He's far from it but anyway can you use the example of corbin as an example of how they can attack you through flack
2: yeah i mean the example of corbin is uh, as an example of the attacking through flack i mean his links to the ira which were tenuous very very tenuous i mean obviously he had links, but then he, I I think the kind of guy that he was, he would have links with people from both sides of an argument because he, he was primarily interested in resolving conflict. I mean, that, that was his, I think that was his perceived, his own perceived role in the world was someone to try and bring two sides together. But I mean, you look at how he was monstered in the press. It was a perfect example of it. He, he, the guy is basically uh, a 70 year old vegetarian that likes working in in his allotment was a reluctant leader at best and decided that if he was going to do the job, he'd try and do the job for, for people that needed someone to represent them. And he's now the the biggest racist fascist that's ever existed outside of Adolf Hitler. If you believe the British press, Uh, they've done an absolutely fantastic job of, completely destroying the image of someone who is essentially a fundamentally decent person. And uh, I suppose one of the
0: less interesting ones, but one of the ones that are actually still quite important of the filters is just sourcing, which is if I come into the newsroom and say, I just wrote this article about such and such about the Iraq war, say, which is still haunting um, Britain and America in many ways. And if I had the wrong sources, if I'd gone to the wrong people, if I got the wrong whatever You'd never see it. Um, and I, the reason why I know this is that, um, again, one of the many links you'll find underneath is a piece about how journalists, when they were asked, British journalists were asked, have you ever been pressured to write a story you disagreed with or remove things from your stories? They said no. Most of them said no. But then when they were asked, how do you do you know anyone around you and people you work with who were pressured? And 70% of them said yes, and that happens all the time. So, obviously, what that tells you is they didn't want to admit that it was happening to them or happening in their workplace, but they had the privilege to go, oh, yeah, that guy has been pressured. So, I think it's it's there. It's only a fool would look at the British media and, to some extent, the Irish media, what well, to a large extent, the Irish media, and think that there was an enormous amount of um, influence
1: over what is over copy, if you will. Um, time yeah, is... I mean, a- yeah, but, I mean, and that's what, um, you know, like, the point that was making earlier. I mean, let's take Richard Chambers, who's an Irish journalist, uh, as an example. You know, he spends a lot of his time outside the doll and other places, um, you know, effectively getting puff pieces and other information um, from, uh, you know, TVs and people like that, um, sources of information. Um, So one, he's there, so he meets them, and so, you know, even if you work with people that you don't like, you start or so have some, like, personability. So it's not completely insane to think, like, oh, well, if i actually do the fucking ragdoll Simon Harris then It's going to make it awkward the next time it walks past me. So you've got one issue there about, you know, sourcing information. And then, second of all, like, <sighs> it's, like, you know, some places are accepted news sources uh, for various reasons that, uh, you yeah, like, have these ideological underpinnings that, we do not have time to get into. Uh, but basically, you know, it's usually seen that, you know, the government is the one that is the highest source of information. Um, and if you piss them off, they'll stop sending you work and you won't be able to then function because then you'll come to your editor saying like, oh, I've got this story or, you know, I'm outside here, uh, but this person won't interview me. This person won't interview me. Uh, and they're like, well, worth for you to me?" Like if you're not getting this, you're not getting it easy. You're not getting it in time. Then why why are you here? Like pack up your desk, <laughs> So you know that you know is a huge facet of the social control. And you know like where do you get your sources from?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose what we might do is start ra- rounding, uh, kind of winding it up with probably the most important question uh, for anyone who's been around for the last 17 to 20 years, which is the rise of social media, uh, the big pu- which are really just publishing houses of a different order, of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Um, how has this changed either manufacturing consent or client journalism? I mean, I don't think it's... Personally, I don't think it's changed client journalism in Britain one bit, because the media, for the most part, the mainstream media, anyway, had a horrible phrase to say, but mainstream media, has gone along. But pretty much with um, just having social media as another wing of what they're saying. Uh, I do think, though, the rise of people like Farage, the rise of, you know, the Brexit party, those ideas uh, has has come about to some degree because of, you know, Facebook groups, Twitter groups, the kind of, um, you know, British equivalent of 8chan that exists it's not obviously benefit. It to some degree has benefit the left. Navarro media was mentioned before, but it's really been the right that's capitalized on social media. Uh, but yeah, James, what do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a mixed bag. Um, there's, you know, there's lots of good points and those are bad points. So I'll try and focus on kind of like the good points because um, we've done loads of episodes about, you know, like how the right propagates through Facebook and misinformation you know, and things like that. Uh, it kind of, you know, we've been there lots of times, I'm sure people that are listening, you know, sort of know where we're that. So where's the good things then? Well, what it means is that we actually now have this, like, unfettered, like, straight from the horse's mouth, um, the way that journalists think, especially with Twitter. And what you find out is that they're fucking moronic of the highest order. Like, Robert Peston. I do not understand how this man is able to actually dress himself. Because his ability to understand and disseminate any fucking information that comes across of him is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, the other day, uh, Sunday, I think, there was, a, like, a story where it was, like, you know, a shit poster um, basically just had a picture of Boris Johnson in a mirror um, and then said something like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the this was clearly photoshopped because the you know the 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 angle of the cord is different in you know one side and then in the mirror it looks like it's going straight down. And Robert Person's like, oh my god, this is crazy. Like why have they photoshopped this? This is this is insane. And it's like how can you not understand that this is a joke first of all? Um I think mean, like even if it is not a joke, like why does it kind of, of matter? Um and this is what it's like all the time. You just see them, like, putting things out. And, um, you know, before it goes through these, you know, eventual filters that would become, like, you know, something like that you saw like, presented live, where you're like, oh, yeah, they're actually just kind of kind of stupid. And they hate it. They hate Twitter. They're kind of addicted to it. And because they kind of, like, love being dunked on us, from what I can tell. Because they don't, like... That something like Twitter is participatory; that they can have an idea, and then within, you know, five seconds of it going up, I'll be calling them bald, uh, and they don't like that because one, they always seem to think that we're always beneath them. But once you've got them in, and, like, because they're like, oh yeah, well, if you just like, if you just start with something that was like a coherent and well argued point. Then they'll just ignore you because they don't want to deal with it. So if the if you can lure them in with something that is like you know just a personal attack where they can like um you know like start playing the victim more at least try and like try to get one over in you. All you have to do then is like once you know that you've got them, then you just switch and you're like, all right, well what about this? How about this factor? Why are you not talking about this? And that's it. They'll go quiet right away, and you will not hear from them again. Like, rental is probably uh, one of the easiest to do that with. And so, you know, it's like shit posters on Twitter are much, much better journalists, just from home, than most of the journalists in the UK. Like, most of us have the ability to think three or four steps ahead. And so, you know, something like, you know, <laughs> knowing right away where Kirstarmer was going and how things are going to pan out for him. And, you know, we're not near the end of the road, as we're all saying is, but I imagine we will all be proven right. And what's going to happen is, you know, people like Goodsberg and Preston are going to be like, well, who could have seen this happen? How could we say when it actually came up to an election cycle that, you know, all of the news media would actually turn on Stammer and actually make him really hard? And he's all these talking points that they're actually using against them. They're like, oh, yeah, us. Uh, that's what we said from the very start. So that's, you know, an aspect of social media that is a a good thing because they see their job as holding the public to account rather than power, uh, where, you know, we can't really change too much by, you know, shitposting and doing what we do, but we can fucking certainly make their Sunday miserable, and that's all they deserve.
0: I think as well that, uh, and Dan has mentioned this, that I think for people who have grown up with the internet or were born with it to a certain extent. They're not like internet immigrants. They are natives. I'll use a terrible phrase. But what I mean by that is that they get that, you know, they can spot the stories of their bullshit. They, not all of them, but a lot of people. And Dan's always said to me, probably to us in general that he's, he's he kind of feels that anyone he's met under the age of like 40, 35, you know, thereabouts, is pretty sound in England. Do you still hold to that Dan? And do you think that's because social media and the, and kind of a savvy use of that has allowed them to really understand things better than those who are brainwashed by tabloids and by the BBC?
2: Yeah, uh, it's definitely. It definitely seems to be an age divide and it's, it's a very, it's a very clear cut line as well. Um, I mean, obviously as you get older, that line, that line moves up, but it, it people 10 years older than me just do not understand the internet in the same way that people my age and I mean I was probably on the internet from about the age of 13 14 I was quite an early adopter so to me the the language the grammar of the internet the way it teaches you to process information that is completely antithetical to the way that a, a, a mainstream press organization wants you to process information. They want you to take it at face value as the internet teaches you like, you can't take anything at face value, even if it's something you agree with, even if you know it's factually true, there's still an element of skepticism. There's still an element of question in it um, that it you can't believe, you can't blanket believe things. And I think like part of the problem with, the internet and social media is definitely an age problem where older people who are, I wouldn't say they're necessarily new to it now, but they just, they haven't grown up with it as it was in its infancy. So they don't understand that it isn't like conventional press. It's not like conventional media. There is to some degree an element of tongue in cheek on almost everything posted on the internet, whether it's posted with serious intent or not. And you you can't take it seriously, even if like I said, even if it's something that you do agree with, something that you know is a fact. There's there's always that element in your mind where you have to be skeptical, because it's so easy to fake information. That if if you just take it at face value, you are a fucking idiot. There's no other way of of me putting it. And you do see people who are of a younger age, but not necessarily they they're not as savvy because they've come to it later as well. I think social media has been really a great democratizer of the internet as a whole um it's basically it's taken forum culture and it's moved it over to the masses but uh, i think a lot of the problem is that that's a lot of people's first experience of the social side of the internet that isn't well it's more open and and sort of everything that comes with that i think i think anyone sort of familiar with the internet would treat it almost like pub talk where someone's had a couple and they're talking shit and that's just the way you treat it but if you're not that familiar it's kind of that they'll take it as sort of a newspaper almost and that so yeah people are prepared to give stuff on the internet the same validity that they'd maybe give to a newspaper even though personally i don't think newspapers technically really deserve that kind of validity anyway
0: Yeah, no, I I think you're right. And I think how that progresses, how in Britain, and I don't know enough about how it's affecting British younger people. I have to take your, well, English younger people, really. I know a bit about how Scottish people are because of uh, James and because of um, Will. Um, But it's interesting to to think that there might be some hope there that the younger people, and I mean younger than people who are in their 40s and 50s, uh, there might be some hope there for for England breaking out of the, these kind of strict controls, almost like kind of caste system imposed by the media. But anyway, um, we are now, uh, have been with you for, I think, over an hour, so we're going to wrap it up uh, with that. Um, does anyone have any last thoughts, maybe some optimistic last thoughts about um, British and Irish media and maybe... Just or do you just want to be depressing and say it's, we're all fucked because people are brainwashed, uh, which is kind of my go-to. Does anyone want to have a last word of optimism?
1: Uh, well, we're here, and there's plenty of other podcasts and YouTube channels and blogs and uh, other people doing interesting stuff. So uh, that's why, in a large extent, there was a rush to privatise the internet because you know that couldn't stand. Uh, but the the genie is out of the bottle for the time being. Uh now I'm not saying that it's it's not going to go back in, that they might find ways to stamp down on these things. Um especially, you know, the way that um Twitter and Facebook and things like that are a little bit rattled um with the Capitol Hill riots. Um again, you know, something that Many people it, like saw it coming down the pipeline a long time ago, um, <clears throat> but you know these things are always used to punch left. They're never really used to to tackle the right because, um, you know, for reasons that are, you know, what? How many episodes have we done of this podcast? Uh, At if forty-three. Yeah, you want that, <laughs> yeah, if you want <laughs> the uh, um, question explained, to you go back and listen to the, the other forty-three episodes. But for the time being, I can. I can think of um any other time in history where I've been able to get as much left wing media at my fingertips um as now, because uh I know, and I know a lot of other people now feel a lot less alone than you did ten years ago, even if you were like hanging out you know with anarchists and going to parties and you know maybe going to you know a big thing down in london like a book fair or something like that you still never really got a sense of like how many people there were and how many people actually think the same way as you do and what's clear is that there's loads of people that think the same way as you do and share the same beliefs and are decent and kind of tired of the way things are going and they're propagandizing their own way what we just need to figure out is how do we stop posting uh, or thinking that posting is going to be the solution to the problem. When you know, when I go on Twitter and call someone bald, I don't think it's going to change the world. I just do it because it makes myself feel better. But some people think, seem to think that you can post hard enough, you'll be able to take over a country. Um, time and time again, it, get back to it. We need to get that energy that we have there and fucking get it out in the street.
0: So uh, that was a hopeful um, uh, prognosis for the future and the present. Hopefully uh, James turns out to be right for once. Um, we'll uh, leave it. <laughs> We're gonna leave it at that uh, because I'm sure we've been talking to you for too long now. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast and even if you hated the podcast, please do share and like on whatever platform you see this on uh we'd like to also reiterate that we are still looking for co-hosts uh semi-regular and irregular co-hosts every two weeks or every month or something like that and if you are interested if you are listening to this And you think that it would be something you'd like to do or like to contact us, you can through Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and uh, on uh, Gmail as well. I think our Gmail is anarchistreadings at gmail.com. So hopefully you can contact us if you're interested. Uh, But that'll be us. Uh, It's goodbye from me. I have been Poop of the World. It is goodbye from Dan. Goodbye, Dan Prick Robinson. Goodbye. And it is goodbye from the nonsense self, manufacturing nonsense,
1: James saying I'm going to go back to Twitter and try and give journalists a heart attack. Uh, that's what I'm going to go back to doing.
0: You should give Brendan Brendan O'Neill a, a toupee because he badly needs one. Or yeah, just well, if, were,
1: if you want to see the power of uh, the new media and how we can affect people, making Brendan O'Neill start wearing a hat for every public appearance. <laughs> like, um, that's how powerful we are. <laughs> We might not be able to get Jeremy Corbyn in, but we can shame Brendan O'Neill.
2: Tell Robert Peston to sort his fucking hair out. (laughs) Well, you know,
0: there's a reason why Brendan O'Neill wears a hat. It's because of his peasant ancestry. Um, No, no one remembers that reference. Okay. Um, Anyway, we're going to leave it at that. Um, Goodbye, guys. See you next week. We don't know what we're going to be talking about then. Bye. Bye.